Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. Today's guest, David Walt, makes the point that we usually measure the achievements of a research scientist by things like publications, grant funding, students trained, and patents. He terms these outputs. To gauge the real-world impact of a scientist's work, he argues, we should instead measure outcomes. For example, how many patents have been translated into commercially viable products, and how many lives have been improved or saved as a result. And from that perspective, David Walt has had significant impact, working with investors and business partners to take technologies developed in his lab and turn them into companies. The most successful, Illumina, manufactures the technology behind the majority of gene sequencing systems and has reduced the cost of sequencing exponentially. The company currently has a market capitalization of over $40 billion. The mission of the Wyss Institute is to transform healthcare, industry, and the environment by emulating the way nature builds. Our bodies and all living systems accomplish tasks far more sophisticated and dynamic than any entity yet designed by humans. And by emulating nature's principles for self-organizing and self-regulating, these researchers develop innovative engineering solutions for healthcare, energy, architecture, robotics, and manufacturing. In addition to being a member of the Wyss Corps faculty, David Walt is a professor at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor. He's the scientific founder of Illumina Inc. and Quanterix Corporation and has co-founded several other life science startups. Previously, he was a university professor, professor of neuroscience, professor of oral medicine at Tufts University. David received a BS in chemistry from the University of Michigan, a PhD in chemical biology from SUNY at Stony Brook, and did postdoctoral studies at MIT. He's a member of the National Academy of Engineering, the National Academy of Medicine, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. David Walt, welcome to Disruptive. Great to be with you, Terrence. Thank you. Uh, I mentioned some highlights, both in terms of academia and entrepreneurism, but could you tell us your own story, your path to the work you do today? Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. I uh, was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. I moved across the north border of the, the city, a uh, place that uh, was made famous in a movie a few years ago called Eight Mile Road, and I uh, moved between Eight and Nine Mile Road, which in those days was the, the hinterlands of, of Detroit. It was the nascent suburbs that were about to sprout up. When I was uh, six years old, uh, I began to uh, just uh, go out the back door of my house and or take my bike down the street. Uh, they were dirt roads and go into to these areas that were completely unexplored. This was uh, new territory. It was filled with frogs and turtles and ponds and insects. And I just would spend pretty much all day out there exploring and really being immersed in a natural environment uh, gave me the opportunity to connect with nature to realize really the the wonder of of nature and inspired me to be curious about how things worked. So that's really the kind of the early days and really sparked my interest in science. I proceeded to be uh, interested in science throughout uh, middle school and high school. I took the usual courses. Uh, I went to University of Michigan. Uh, I was actually a pre-medical uh, student. That was my uh, interest. My parents, uh, having been uh, working parents, uh, my father 
having achieved only a two-year college education at a community college, was a furniture salesman, and uh, education was the opportunity to move up in the professional world. And medicine was perceived as being sort of the top of the of the opportunity chain. And so even within my first uh, semester in college, I, I started doing research in a laboratory of one of the faculty, became interested in research, and fairly uh, soon thereafter uh, realized that the opportunity to contribute to the world and, and to contribute to medicine was uh, more likely to be uh, uh, something enabled by discoveries, by inventions, and doing this on a on sort of a global scale as opposed to an individual patient to doctor scale. And, and so that's uh, why I, I took the path of going into uh sort of life sciences research and chemical biology, which was sort of a combination of chemistry and biology, and really was where I began to develop the research tools to uh, begin to explore those areas that could have the greatest impact in medicine. You were actually looking at how can I have the greatest impact? I'm not saying that's remarkable, but I, I think a lot of kids probably aren't yet. But you actually had that perspective. I, I would say as I pursued my research path in the university, I definitely saw that the kinds of questions that could be asked were of the nature that you really could begin to, to see how doing something, developing a new drug, uncovering a new pathway in biology would lead to something that could, in fact, have a, an effect on many thousands, if not millions of individuals. Yes. So then you do postgraduate studies at MIT, and you have said that uh, it was at, at in George Whiteside's lab, and he was then at MIT, that you grew from being a chemist to being a scientist. And wh what do you what do you mean, and how did that happen? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I, I once made that comment at a uh, at a public event, and it uh, garnered uh, a lot of chuckles because I think folks were misinterpreting my statement to mean that I didn't think that chemists were scientists, which was not the case. <laughs> what what I meant was that uh, from the perspective of, at, at the time I was a, an organic chemist, which is a, a very you know, interesting, important area of pursuit, but it's narrow. You think about molecules, you make molecules, you study uh, the transformation of one molecule into another uh, from a mechanistic perspective. But as I began to go to seminars at MIT, uh, which was really this this incredibly rich experience, you know, this is back in the late '70s, uh, early '80s. This was the the time when DNA sequencing was being invented by Maxim and Gilbert and Fred Sanger, uh, recombinant DNA, and the whole uh, genetic engineering field was beginning to develop. I would go to these seminars in these other departments and realize that here's an opportunity for a chemist to contribute in ways that perhaps no, in a way that others were not thinking at the time because most of those fields were dominated by biologists. And so as I began to explore these uh, various uh, new fields, I began to read 
uh, journals such as Science and Nature instead of Journal of the American Chemical Society, Journal of Organic Chemistry, and expanded my horizons from chemistry to thinking about problems on a larger scale that chemists could begin to think about and solve. The point that I raised in the introduction that you've made about the difference between outputs and outcomes, could you talk just a bit about that and the role that that has played and plays in your approach to your work? Sure. I usually qualify my comments about outputs, things such as publications, uh, grant funding, your number of students that you've trained. You know, these are uh, what I refer to as the coin of the realm in, in academics. And they're important things, don't get me wrong. It's important to publish high-quality papers and journals. The problem with that is that if that's as far as things go and the only thing that people measure themselves by are the number of citations that those papers garner and, again, the, the number of students and, and uh, grant funding that they have, then it's sort of a dead end because what you're really trying to do in research is you're trying to ultimately Im improve the world. Uh, and, and that does not uh, speak against fundamental science. It's a critical, important part of the scientific enterprise. It's the seed corn that provides uh, the, the inspiration for the next technologies and the next uh, discoveries that are made. But from my perspective, if a laboratory just publishes a paper and there's uh, a technology that is coming out of that laboratory, then I feel it's beholden upon the inventors, the, the scientists, to sort of take the next step if they think that technology is genuinely going to have an impact on the world. And so that's uh, the perspective that I'm coming from. It's, it's something that I think is not for everyone. It's not necessarily the best thing to do as a, a junior faculty member or a young uh, graduate student or postdoc. You need to finish your training. You need to establish the credentials of publication so that you can put yourself in a position where you can uh, get the job that allows you to have that impact. But nonetheless, I think that ultimately the long-term goal for all scientists should be, you know, as you look back on your career, have have you made an impact? Have you changed the way people think about things, do things? Have you, have you made a better world out of uh, what you've done in your uh, research career? Illumina is your most successful company, as I said, current market capitalization over $40 billion, which is for scope larger than the Marriott Hotel chain, for instance. Could you share the Illumina story? What was the, the problem that it solved? What was the breakthrough that allowed you to uh, come up with that technology? Well, you know, it's a very interesting story and, and is not uh, necessarily a, a, a linear one in, in the sense that we didn't set out to accomplish what we ended up uh, doing that led to the technology that was the basis for, for Illumina. Sometime, perhaps, you know, three or four years after I, I left MIT uh, working with George Whitesides as a postdoc, I began to work in the field of sensors. And, and one of the new opportunities uh, back in the uh, sort of mid-1980s was this field of fiber optic sensors. Uh, this was a technology that was developed uh, for the telecommunications industry to send light signals. And 
we began to uh, do some interesting things where we would attach uh, materials to the ends of these optical fibers, and you could put them into the body, you could put them underground to measure environmental contamination. And these were, you know, measuring typically one or two things at a time, you know, things like pH and oxygen or carbon dioxide. And what we learned over a period of time is that measuring just one or two things at a time turned out to not be what people wanted because they began to want to measure multiple things, something called multiplexing. And so we started to bundle these things together, but that uh, began to get very complex with the instrumentation and the, the you know, keeping track of signals uh, in these days was not easy. What we learned is that there were these new kinds of optical fibers called uh, imaging fibers. These were very high-density bundles of optical fibers. They were melted and fused together, and they were being used to carry images. And uh, one of the, the applications that people were pursuing and still used uh, to this day are using these optical fibers as endoscopes to be able to go into the body. So we got our hands on some of these, and began to create these fibers that had many different sensors on them. We published a paper in Nature on this. And one day, uh, we decided to pursue the possibility that we could create a, a very high-throughput type of nanoprobe. Uh, this is a probe that allows you to detect things below the diffraction limit of light. Uh, and what people were doing at the time were taking single optical fibers and pulling them to a very uh, tiny tip. Uh, this was, you know, kind of melting the glass and pulling it very quickly. And you could get kind of a nano tip at the end of the fiber and you'd coat it with gold and you'd be able to scan that over a surface and get a sub uh, diffraction limit, meaning, you know, something on the order of about a 50 nanometer a resolution image by scanning this thing over a particular surface area. But it required something called raster scanning, meaning, you know, taking kind of a pencil tip and uh, scanning it over a piece of paper in order to detect an image. You know, it, it took quite a while to even uh, assemble an image that was, you know, just a couple of microns in diameter. So we realized that with these imaging fiber bundles, we could potentially etch these things to the same kind of tips, but we could make these things on the order of 50 or 60,000 of these at a time uh, so that you could speed up the process by 50,000 fold because you had 50,000 tips doing the scanning. And so we, we decided that we would begin to etch these glass fibers with uh, something called hydrofluoric acid. And every time that we tried to etch these things such that we got these tips, we got these little microwells uh, instead. That is, each of the fibers, instead of etching back to a point, actually etched to a, a, a little well uh, similar to maybe a, an egg carton, if that might be a decent analogy for the listeners. And so we eventually accomplished what we uh, wanted to accomplish, which was making these tips. But this is, you know, kind of in the late 1990s, we were working on creating these microarrays, these uh, DNA arrays that were able to detect 
you know, multiple DNA sequences at a time. And we published a paper in Nature Biotechnology where we were able to measure six different sequences in a sample. So this was dipping the sample into a solution. We could measure six of these uh, DNA sequences. This was sort of the early days of gene expression. And everybody was excited about that. But as I was talking to one of my collaborators, he said, you know, David, as I talk to more and more biologists and geneticists, they're talking about potentially wanting to measure 100 sequences at a time. And potentially one day in the far future, uh, there may be a possibility of needing to measure thousands of sequences at a time. Well, at that instant that that person uh, mentioned this, and this was in the privacy of my office, I realized that we had a very interesting solution to this problem because just a few months before, one of my students, uh, Carrie Michael, who was a PhD student at the time, she had done an experiment where she took these little beads, these tiny microspheres of plastic, just latex beads, and she took a droplet of a, a suspension of these beads and put it on one of these optical fibers with these little divots on them. Right. And lo and behold, when she looked under the microscope, every well was occupied by a bead. We thought that was an interesting thing, but we didn't know what the heck it was good for. But when this person uh, said, David, you know, we may need to measure a few hundred or a few thousand of these sequences at a time, I had the best way to describe it is, is an epiphany, you know, and that happens, you know, a, a few times in your career where all of a sudden, for those folks who are uh, fans of the original movie, The Matrix, where, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, Neo sort of all of a sudden is able to read the binary code, all the pieces fell into place. And we realized that we could attach DNA sequences to these beads, we could encode these beads, and we could then put these beads into wells and make what uh, has now called random arrays. You would make these arrays in a random way and figure out which bead went into which location after you made it. And that really revolutionized the way people thought about making arrays. A few months later, I uh, found myself giving a, a talk at Scripps Institute in, in La Jolla and uh, uh, unbeknownst to me in the audience were a couple of venture capitalists, uh, one of whom, uh, Larry Bach, came up to me after the seminar and asked me if, if we could meet for breakfast the next day. And at breakfast that day, he proposed that uh, we start a company that would uh, potentially uh, pursue this uh, random array technology for uh, a variety of potential applications. What I love was that there was call it an accidental discovery uh, of these wells that was not what you intended and that was kind of set aside for a while, discovered, noted. The uh, researcher working on that didn't just go, oh, damn, but he, he noted that, that that happened, but there was no use for it. Then a random conversation points out a need that you hadn't thought about. And in that moment, the set-aside discovery and the uh, sort of random comment came together for you. I would say that's ex exactly correct, but with one small correction. The, the postdoc who was doing the etching, uh, Paul Pantano, who's now on the faculty at University of Texas at Dallas, Paul did say, oh, damn, every time. <laughs> he, said it, he said it 
daily uh, because it, you know pretty much every time he tried this experiment, he got the opposite result to what he he expected. But yes, in the end, uh, we we made uh, uh, lemonade out of lemons. I, I knew exactly what needed to be done, and and you know it it's a a little bit of a challenge as a as a faculty mentor to go into a laboratory and ask students to abandon what they're doing mm-hmm. in favor of, of something that, at least to them, may sound like the research advisor's uh, idea of the day. But this was an idea that I felt was important. Uh, I recognized that even before we had reduced it to practice as something that had the potential to be incredibly important. I literally pointed to four students who I knew were were sort of stuck on their projects at the moment and and you know may have been looking for a break. Uh, three of them ended up uh, agreeing to work on this, and a few months later we had a paper on this. And then it's after that paper that you speak in San Diego? Uh, yes, that's correct. And so as you point out, Larry Box says, let's have breakfast. At breakfast he proposes there's a, there's a company to be made based around this. What happens next? You're a scientist. He's a VC. What happens next when the two of you sit there at breakfast and say, let's do this? Well, I think I was a little bit reluctant to embrace this right away. Uh, I wanted to make sure that this was going to be done in a way that was going to enable the, the technology to be successful. But by the end of, you know, three or four weeks, uh, I, I was pretty comfortable that this was a, a, a legitimate team. Uh, I, I did my uh, homework on them, talked to some friends who had been involved with with them previously. Uh, the next step was for them to to get a license to the technology or an option to a license to the technology, followed by coming to the lab and kicking the tires. They they sent folks to the lab who were there really to see did, did the technology work. One person came to my lab, uh, Mark Chi, who had. Uh, recently left uh, what ended up being a, a fairly substantial competitor to Illumina in the early days. And Mark had a hotel reservation, I think, for three weeks. After four days, he left and said, definitely, this works. It's easier than than I thought. And by the way, uh, is there any way I could join the company? <laughs> One of the things that, that I've heard you say is that if you've got a good idea, you're thinking about starting a company, the money will find you. What's more important is finding the right people. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I What I uh, try to convey to people is good ideas can attract money. Uh, you need to get money that comes with something more than just the cash, with people who uh, have a, a network, who are able to have the vision, have the connections to be able to find the right initial hires, the right business people to run the company and have a reputation that will attract other high quality investors to also participate. And it's uh, the the high quality investors who really help bring people to the table that can help you execute in in a way that uh, jumpstarts the company and gets it off on the right foot. So what happened next? The micro array with beads developed and became you know, Illumina's uh, signature product uh, for for many years. Um, it does genetic analysis. It's what's used for things like 23andMe, for Ancestry.com, 
for all the you know very high throughput, what are called genome-wide association studies, called GWAS, that are carried out you know on tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of of individuals because it's very cheap, very high throughput. You can you know measure millions of things at a time. You're working with the structure of DNA, which is relatively simple compared with that of proteins. Well, Illumina was focused on the DNA technology for genetic analysis. The technology that we developed for proteins uh, became another company called Quanterix. How much have your technologies increased the speed and precision and reduced the cost of sequencing? Let, Let me give you some numbers. So the Human Genome Project cost north of $3 billion to get a single sequence and that sequence was done eight times. The, the reason for that is that when you do a single sequence uh, run, you get errors. When you do a sequence multiple times, uh, the, the errors go away. So that was in what was called an 8x sequence, and that was about $3.2 billion. By the time the Human Genome Project was completed, roughly in 2002, 2003, the estimate was if they had started it over again, it would cost $100 million. So the technology had improved by a factor of about, you know, tenfold, twentyfold in that intervening time in terms of, the, you know, the instruments that were being developed and the processes for doing it. But it was highly labor intensive. It required 40 institutions contributing over a period of 13 years at $3.2 billion. Today, on one of the high-throughput Illumina sequencers, you can obtain, you know, this is these are just sort of rough numbers, approximately 30 human genomes that have all been done at about 30x, mm. and each one of those genomes costs about $1,000. So you're, you're taking lots of zeros off of it, about uh, three million fold, or if you take the 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 hundred million, uh, you know you're now down a, a factor of a hundred thousand. So you've taken a lot of zeros off the sequencing cost, right? Which changes the whole ball game, of course. Um, it does. It's not an exceptional achievement. It's uh, something which happens over and over again all over the country uh, every day. That's exactly right, and you know it's it's at the point where you know it's it's now. Uh, something that people can do. Uh, uh, there's lots of compelling reasons in in the medical field, clinical field, for having a sequence done, particularly for folks who have been diagnosed with cancers. I just saw the other day that something like 60% of all cancer patients have their sequence done because it helps guide therapy and predict outcomes. So it is having a, a an incredible impact already, even though it, it has a long way to go before uh, it, it's achieved its full potential. How did you choose what role you wanted to play, and what advice would you give others in that position? The good investors value the inventors, and the reason for that is that they bring with them very deep knowledge and understanding of the technology, and that really helps catalyze the the foundation of the company. It helps get the company going much quicker than if if it's simply taking a license and forgetting about the inventors. The inventors had thought about 
the technology a long time. And most of the time, as with any researcher, experiments fail, technology fails. And when it works, uh, it works because people are clever, they've created something, they've avoided all the pitfalls, and you want to take advantage of all that knowledge base so that you don't repeat the same mistakes if you go forward. And I think the good investors recognize that having those individuals involved at the beginning of a company uh, really brings uh, tremendous value. If you're ever in, in a position where you have the opportunity to start a company based on technology that's come out of your lab or that you've invented, my advice is that you're in, in a good position to control the conversation and control how much or little you want to be involved. If you really want to see the technology uh, end up working as best as it can, then you're, you as an inventor are obligated to ensure that, that you provide the best advice to the company at least for a period of time before you've efficiently transfer your knowledge to the people who are then going to run with the company. If you decide that uh, joining a company is something that's of interest, uh, go for it. I think that's, you know, it's a, a great uh, opportunity. There's tremendous uh, excitement in, in working at a startup uh, and, and in, in some cases, some of the best science, some of the best technologies are being pursued in, in some of these uh, well-funded high-profile biotech companies. Mm -hmm. But you also make the point that don't think because you're a great scientist, you're going to have the best ideas about the business. You, you said that uh, business folks, they may not focus on the coolest science. They may focus on the first product they can get out the door, but there's reasons for that. Scientists and engineers are, are great at what they do. Uh, they also have to be humble about what they don't know. And I think one of the biggest mistakes of certainly folks who are interested in biotech and life science tools is joining a company and thinking that you can be the CEO. Uh, bring in the best business talent. These people have experience. They know how to run companies. They know about finance. They've got relationships with investors. They have uh, marketing and sales skills. They know how to build organizations. As a scientist, we may be good at running an academic lab, but running a business is a whole different ballgame and, and use the talents of people that will bring the same level of creativity uh, and vision to the business as you bring to the science and to the technology. If you are doing world-class science, you want to be partnered with people who are doing world-class business. That's exactly right. What I always tell people about the success of Illumina is that the technology and the science are only a piece of it. Yeah, you know, it, it might be an important piece, and I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but without those individuals uh, who had the vision for how to, uh, you know, what products to introduce, how to build the sales and marketing force, how to finance the company in a way that did not give away too much of the company to investors and, and retained enough uh, to, to give incentives to the employees. 
that's what requires an equal, if not greater, <laughs> uh, degree of talent than than just coming up with the uh, original technology. Right. And what advice do you give scientists interested in moving into entrepreneurism? Becoming an entrepreneur enables you to see technologies develop in ways that, you know, simply publishing papers does not. And so it's an incredibly rewarding experience. Uh, it allows you to have the impact if that's your goal. When I started Quanterix with this new single molecule technology, people said to me, David, are you crazy? Why would you want to start another company? Mm. Uh, you know, I had I had been uh, successful uh, with Illumina, you know, both financially and, and uh, from a career perspective, and it's a lot of work. And so that, that's something that I would tell a, a young entrepreneur, it's an incredible amount of work. And so people ask me that question, why would you want to start another company? And I said, well, if I don't do it, if I don't take this technology from my laboratory and translate it into the private sector, then nobody's going to do it. I'll publish a nice paper, but that's going to probably be the end of the story. Other people may pursue it, but it won't have the intellectual property protection. It won't have the investment because it'll just be out in the public domain. So I felt compelled to do it because in order to make an impact in the field of clinical diagnostics for proteins, the only person who was going to take that path was going to be the inventor or inventors of the technology. And so that's why we started we started Quanterix. So what I would say to, to entrepreneurs is a lot of hard work, a lot of fun. You'll learn a lot. And if you don't do it, nobody else will. What advice would you give entrepreneurs or VC types interested in working with scientists? That's a great question. I, I don't think I've ever received that before. Um, I think there's a, a number of things I would tell uh, investors working with scientists. And I think the, the best investors approach scientists in this way. The first is to treat the scientists with respect. The second is, particularly for young scientists and first-time entrepreneurs, serve as a mentor for that individual or individuals because this is a learning experience for them and they need to be mentored throughout the process. The third is to make sure that you uh, sufficiently incentivize them and to understand what what their motivation is in terms of incentives, you know, whether it's consulting fees or equity, you know, depending on the, the stage of their career that they're at. And then, you know, fourth, to keep them in the loop and keep them involved so that they feel that they're part of the decision-making process. David, you recently, after a long and very successful career at Tufts, decided to move to the Wyss Institute. What went into that decision? How and why did you do that? So I was very happy at Tufts. I, you know, I, I was planning to uh, serve my entire career there. Uh, but, you know, this is one of those opportunities that uh, sort of comes your way. And it's a, you know, it's one of those uh uh, opportunities that you can't refuse. Uh, the Vs is an extraordinary uh, place. It's incredibly collaborative. Uh, its mission is to translate these technologies. Uh, and so it it meshes well with my personal uh, goals and, and values. The quality of the 
people, uh, you know, from the core faculty, the staff, the students, just an incredible uh, compilation of, of expertise and facilities. But the most compelling aspect of it is that it's located it really in the, the heart of, of one of, if not the greatest uh, concentration of, of high-quality uh, hospitals in the world, which allows the, the technologies that are being developed to be uh, tested at, you know, directly in a clinical environment and to work with clinicians uh, right at the outset in helping identify what, what the unmet needs in, in clinical medicine are. You know, to me, that was really the, the driving uh, force for my uh, moving was, was just being embedded in that incredibly rich environment that combines both technology and a very rich clinical ecosystem that, that allows you to literally walk across the street to three different hospitals and find experts in, in whatever disease or, or, or whatever clinical area you need to talk to to understand what the problem is so that you can optimally design your technology to meet that need. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've uh, that's come across to me in in previous interviews with folks in the VIS is that from bedside to to lab, from bedside to lab is just so rapid and fluid. That's correct. Uh, there's MDs walk in the hall, but uh, there's PhDs who could walk across the street and uh, talk to world experts. Uh, you know, I think. One of my goals at, at the VIS, at least in this area of diagnostics that I'm, I'm so passionate about, is to kind of turn the approach from one where it's a technology push to a clinical need pull. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, that dynamic is developing in ways that I think is is going to be incredibly uh, transformative for the mission of the VIS. You know, what you just said, from a technology push to a clinical pull, it seems to me that's almost the next level of translation where, you know, it's not how do we translate this, it's like what do you need translated? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It's really about finding the, the right technology to fit the problem. Uh, rather than trying to fit a technology to meet a particular problem. And I think that's been the traditional way is, you know, folks come up with a technology and then say, what's it good for? And I think now uh, the conversation is is very different. You know, what is the clinical need and can we find a technology at the VIS? And invariably the answer is yes, because there's it's so uh, rich with technology that uh, there's probably three or four technologies for any problem that could potentially be purposed to solve a particular clinical problem. Yeah, so we go from discoveries that never get out of the lab because they're stuck in academia to translation and now the next uh, generation of translation. You've actually started a lecture series at the VIS, Diagnostic Grand Rounds. What is that? How does it work? And why did you feel the need to create it? Well, it speaks directly to what we've just been talking about, and that's bringing clinicians to the VIS to talk about unmet needs in their field. So whether it's cardiology, infectious disease, uh, pulmonology, orthopedics, emergency room medicine, what we're trying to do is bring people who 
live and breathe in those clinical environments uh, to the V's to articulate what are the unmet needs in those fields that technology potentially could solve. And, and so when, when I uh, give speakers instructions, I say, look, you know, it's great to talk about what you do, but I, we, we also want to hear what you can't do because there, there will be people in the audience who probably will be able to help you figure out how to do what you can't do. And invariably, after the speakers uh, finish their formal presentations, even during the presentations, there's lots of questions, but we have ample time afterwards for informal discussion with speakers. And there's always, uh, you know, six or seven people who end up approaching the speaker to find out if there's an opportunity for, for collaboration. And I think that's gonna, we're gonna see the, the results of that over the next few years as, as these conversations and collaborations uh, get going in, in full force. And you're working on something else at the VEAS called the Diagnostics Accelerator. What is that and, and where's that going? The Diagnostics Accelerator is a way in which we can take technologies that can make a difference in uh, clinical diagnostics and really help do exactly what the name uh, says, accelerate the translation of those technologies into the clinic. And I hearken back to my experience with, with Illumina, where you know the company is 20 years old. Really, the first clinical applications did not get introduced until you know somewhere in sort of the 15 or 16 year time frame of the of the company, uh, where it, it, they began to be used for um, uh, non-invasive prenatal testing, they you know are now being used in the clinic for cancer. These technologies you know took a long time to get into the clinic, and and so the accelerator is aimed at identifying the unmet needs and really helping the technologists work with the clinicians in a very direct way to accelerate the translation from uh, sort of that discovery phase right into the clinic to help make the impact on patients' lives happen in a much more compressed time frame. And what do you see, say, five years down the road with this diagnostics accelerator? I think it's going to be a, a, an incredibly rich environment for researchers, which will include scientists and engineers, uh, clinicians, and also the people who deliver care, you know, nurses, uh, EMTs, to really work in proximity. What I would say is is sort of a, a machine that's able to translate these things in a, in a very efficient way as, as we learn sort of what the barriers are in the regulatory system. We learn the barriers to translating technologies into the clinic, the, that is the, the behavioral issues, the social mm -hmm. uh, issues, the reimbursement issues. Uh, you know, just, just as we were talking about, you know, building a business, it's not only about the science and technology. It, it, it takes talented people on the business side as well. I think in the clinical realm, there are lots of issues with entrenched technologies, the way that people are trained that they don't want to change, you know, these kinds of psychological barriers and, and uh, for lack of a better term, you know, some of the political mm -hmm. uh, barriers that exist in getting new technologies into the clinic, I think we need to understand those 
uh, so that we can really help accelerate these technologies. Uh, because I, you know, I think in many cases, those kinds of barriers are, are of equal magnitude to the technological ones. Sure. A few minutes ago, one thing you said really surprised me, and I don't suppose it should have, which was that you said Illumina becomes successful, becomes in some ways phenomenally successful, uh, is having a big impact, and yet it took 15 years before it moved into diagnostics applications. And what you're hoping here is that a technology that might be useful for diagnostics will get there quicker. That's correct. I think that there's a, a real opportunity to compress the time frames from a technology development to the clinic to something more on the four to five year time frame than the 15 to 20 year time frame, which is sort of traditional. And the reason for that is that companies that introduce these new technologies like sequencing, for example, or an ultra-sensitive protein measurement, oftentimes uh, the, the first and easiest path to commercialization is as a research tool. Yes. They, they build an instrument, they get them into the lab, and if that's successful, if the uptake of those instruments and uh, the consumable pull-through that results from selling those instruments and then selling reagents to support them uh, build up the revenue base of the company, it's very difficult for the company to switch from being a life science tools research community uh, company to one that now... Uh, transitions to a clinical company. Just the the incentives are different, the markets are different. And so I think what's going to be critical is to show the clinical utility of some of these technologies early Mm. so that the clinical applications can be pursued at least in concert with the research applications. So as you're developing your culture, as you're developing your incentives, as you're developing your focus, does that go again back to your original thing about impact, that having impact and making research better is great, but let's get it into the clinic? Yes, that's exactly right. Because, you know, in the end, while it's wonderful to provide new research tools to the the, the research community to enable new discoveries to be made, it's equally, if not more impactful to see these technologies translate into the clinical uh, environment where they begin to have an effect on patient lives. How long have you been at the VEAS at this point, David? I arrived at the VEAS in July of 2017. So, you know... Year and uh, a half. Year and a half. Yeah. And anything you want to say about your experience, something that surprised you, something you hadn't thought about that uh, has, has shown up for you? I think that for me, the the biggest surprise is is that when I spoke with with Don Ingber, the the, the founding director of the VEAS, Don said, "Look, you know, we're going to give you some space, but the the way that you can increase your profile and the space that you you have at the VEAS is by engaging in collaborations. That's what we're we're all about." You know, I was thinking that boy, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people, but the way that the VEAS is set up is such that the six people that I first put at the VEAS all talk to other people at the VEAS. And it's sort of just this organic uh, development of collaborations and ideas that occurs. Every week now, people come and say, oh, I was talking to so-and-so, and 
uh, you know, we're interested in, you know, they're interested in doing something with us and we're interested, you know, we've been talking about a way to do something together. And so these, these collaborations just occur, as I say, organically, that they're, you know, part of the fabric of the institution. And so uh, it's very low barriers to, to working with people and coming up with really interesting new ideas. You know, to me, that's the biggest and most pleasant surprise I've had. You know, what's interesting is in their very definition, I think, which I read at the start, they talk about uh, self-organization and self-assembly. And I think most people probably assume they're talking about within their experiments, within their research. But what you're saying is self-organization and self-assembly takes place within the culture. That's exactly right. What are you working on now, both in terms of science, translation, taking advantage of, of, of the situation? What are the questions driving you these days? How do we take technologies and uh, accelerate their impact in these really pressing healthcare problems of our day? Cancer, neurodegenerative disease, uh, infectious disease for the developing world. These are all problems that I think are, are really things that people have been working on a long time, and we need to, to begin to come up with the tools to, one, understand those diseases, two, diagnose them early, and three, uh, come up with uh, therapies that can uh, either delay the onset of symptoms or cure the diseases entirely. So those are, are the, the things that I'm laser focused on and the specifics of how we're, we're going to solve those problems uh, get into the nitty-gritty details of the technologies that we're bringing to bear to solve each of those problems. But that's sort of the, the way I organize my lab and really you know, try to drive the efforts that we, we undertake. It's interesting, going back to the start of the conversation where your parents hoped you would become a doctor. I mean, as you describe what drives you at this point, it's basically everything that would drive a doctor with an individual patient is the same thing that's driving you with the whole field. That's uh, exactly right. What I would say is I've, I've set very high goals and aspirations. Uh, if I am able to check the box on one of those three areas, I'll consider it a success, but I'm hoping to have an impact on all three. Thank you, David Walt, uh, for your time and for your work. Thank you, Terrence. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Disruptive, Accelerating Diagnostics. I'm Terrence McNally. My guest has been David Walt. You can learn more about his work and a broad and exciting range of other projects at the VIS website, vis.harvard.edu. That's w-y-s-s.harvard.edu, where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the VIS site or at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll of the Wies Institute and to J.C. Swadek in production and to you, our listeners. Please share this podcast widely and I look forward to being with you again soon.